Hello and welcome to Unofficial Pilot, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. This is episode five of our series, Rethinking Sport, with Portus, the global strategy consultancy dedicated to sport and physical activity. Today we're talking about government regulation of football with our guests Rick Parry, the chairman of the EFL, and Adam Packer from Portus. Rick Parry is the former chief executive of Liverpool, the original CEO of the Premier League and a board member of New York Cosmos. He was recruited from his position as senior management consultant with the leading UK firm Ernst & Young in 1991 to assist in planning the new Premier League, and he was appointed chief executive in February 92. The competition was officially ratified just seven days later by the FA, allowing Parry to proceed with negotiations for a television deal, which was eventually awarded to B-Sky-B and the BBC for a then-record bid of £304 million over five years. The context of this conversation is the recent review of English football carried out by Tracy Crouch, MP, the former sports minister and a previous guest on Unofficial Partner. Her review was set up following the failure of the Super League, which featured six of the Premier League's leading teams. UK Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden announced he had no choice but to move quickly and launch the government's manifesto commitment of a fan-led review. The review, he said, will be wide-ranging in nature and will examine the potential for changes to ownership models, governance, how finance flows through the game and how to give supporters a greater say in the running of football. The launch of the fan-led review comes following a number of high-profile collapses in recent years, including Berry Football Club that went into administration last year after being expelled from the Football League in 2019. So, a lot to talk about. If you like the podcasts, you'll love the Unofficial Partner newsletter that goes direct to the inbox of thousands of senior executives across the global sports business every Thursday. To join them, sign up via unofficialpartner.com. I wanted to talk just generally, before we get to the specifics, about the sort of impulse for regulation, not just, you know, within football, but, you know, Adam, we might talk across sport. Mm. It, and it, it sort of, is it something that comes in and out of fashion? Is it is there a context to people wanting a regulator? Because there is a sort of aspiration within that, that there's almost a desire for control and as a sort of uh, everything will be okay if we have a regulator. So before we get to the Tracy Crouch review about football, what do you think about regulation more generally? So I'm 100% in favour of good governance without any question. And I think sports has to improve. I think there, there are lots of examples of good governance. There are lots of examples of poor governance. And I think there is has been maybe a tendency in sport to think good governance is a hindrance, it holds you back, it impairs performance. And I would argue the complete opposite. I, I would argue that good governance is a virtue, it's a strength, and you will succeed even better in the long term if you build on a platform of good governance. I, I completely believe in transparency, and sport is generally very bad on transparency. Uh, and for me, transparency is the key to governance, because if you do everything in the open, listen, you're not going to get everything right. You might make some bad decisions. You might get things wrong. But if you're doing it in the open, then, you know, at least you can hold your hands up and say, well, look, this is what we did. That's why we did it. Maybe there was a different way we could have done things, but we're not going to hide. We're going to do everything in the open. Um, 
So transparency, I think, is really important. Accepting accountability, I think, is really important. The best governance structures are the simplest. Make life really straightforward. Have a very, very simple, clear, consistent decision-making process. And, and that's governance. Transparency, accountability, consistency, simplicity. You get those principles right and you won't go too far wrong. We've got this knee-jerk in football at the moment. We need a regulator. Nobody's actually articulated why or what they're actually going to do. Uh, or indeed, what is wrong at the moment that we can't put right with transparency, with accountability, with, um, uh, you know, with, with better decision making processes. So, you know, where you, where you will run into complications very, very quickly. Uh, I was having a chat with somebody um, the other day about banking regulation, which works incredibly well. But I said, but there is a difference. And he said, what's that? I said, well, as far as I know, banks don't actually play in a league. <laughs> which govern how they compete now who then sets the rules if you have a set of rules for example on financial fair play which we do in the EFL the Premier League does UEFA does whose responsibility are they are they the competition organisers or are they the regulators you know are they, are they necessary for giving effect to the competition or are they necessary to ensure financial propriety and solvency? It, 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 and, and for example, who would set wage caps? Does the regulator set wage caps? Does the regulator then end up in court with the PFA because they're opposed to hard caps? I mean, the, listen, and none of this is insurmountable. And we're not putting our heads in the sand and saying we're implacably opposed to better regulation because we're absolutely not. But these are all sorts of things that have got to be thought through, I think, before you leap to the conclusion, we need a regulator. Yeah, I completely concur with all that, uh, Rick. I think, um, I think actually you're spot on. You know, good, good kind of plain, simple governance is, is a key to, to all of this. Uh, and I also agree with you that in, in, in these calls for, the reg, for, for a regulator, I, I was just left having read that, uh, that, that sort of open letter a few times from Tracy Gretchen, thinking kind of, what does this really look like? You know, how are you really going to make this work? And I feel, I feel there's some big unanswered questions there. I'll, I'll just add to that. I think that good governance promotes innovation in sports it, and it doesn't, it doesn't um, straitjacket innovation. So I think you have good governance, which allows things like new forms of the sports to, to flourish, uh, bringing those sports to, to new, uh, you know, new practitioners, bringing in new, you know, new techno technologies as well. So I think kind of, for, for me, sometimes you see the argument almost as, as sort of regulation governance is coming at the expense of, of innovation. But I think, I think good governance you know, actually allows it to flourish. Not any innovation, but I think it brings new people, better people, better quality investors, because if you've got a solid framework um, where, where people feel that their investment is, in inverted commas, safe, then you, you, you're going to get better quality of people longer term. Absolutely. I, I agree with you, Adam, in terms of the framing of, of regulation. It's almost sort of anti-competitive, anti-free market and anti-free competition. People quite often go to the American sport models, and that again is is a, and th that comes with a whole load of assumptions of central strong central control from NFL, NBA, whoever, with tighter regulations, but also with the obvious caveat that they don't have relegation, and there is a more controlled environment where 
it is within the states what what do we think about the usefulness of the american league comparison i think comparisons are always useful but clearly they can always be dangerous too and the american model works there and there's a lot to admire they get competitive balance right but it it's a it's it's completely and utterly different philosophically for example from the football model in europe because effectively the american model is a joint enterprise you know you are you are a part owner of the total enterprise and values all tend to rise together and you have to be a pretty inept owner not to increase the value of your franchise because you have revenue sharing you have you have effective cost controls and if you get it wrong on the pitch by the way you get first pick of the talent so that's not a bad environment to uh, to succeed in we differ in two respects one as you touched on promotion and relegation which is absolutely fundamental certainly to football and secondly to the importance of the pan european game so european competition champions league etc um and if you want to impose similar restrictions for example in the champions league and and uefa does well with financial fair play it's it's improved the system in recent years at least it's made an attempt but it's extraordinarily difficult when you've got such different legal systems different tax rates different bases of paying players different legal systems for um transfer fees for example and liquidated damages incredibly difficult to have the same degree of control and european maybe that's what the super league was um aspiring to but it but very complex in that environment so there are things we can learn but i think there are a lot of things the americans can also learn from us but that you know listen that's the beauty of knowledge exchange and having owners with different perspectives you know you do keep on learning i think i think one of the interesting things from america is that we've got quite a lot of controversy at the moment um which has found its way to the high court of course with newcastle united and the takeover and part of that part of the noise around that is when well, we need a regulator because this has to be wholly objective and how can clubs in the premier league possibly be involved in deciding on changes of control well you go to america and the owners vote on who's allowed to own a franchise it's wholly subjective um you know so how does how does that square with enhanced regulation i think it's a really good point and yeah i mean for, for our, you know for our part of course you know america is an exceptional exceptionally innovative environment when it comes to sport and you know we we kind of monitor and scrutinize it constantly um including around sort of ownership type type issues and there's some interesting conversations going on at the moment for instance with with the nba you know sort of trialing um multi-franchise ownership by 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 sort of single financial uh, institutions on a minority basis uh, and you know that, and those are those are extremely interesting models for us to look at but you know as as, again, as as Rick said we can't just take that as a cookie cutter and apply it to to european sports you know i think one thing that's been very you know, has been underlined very very clearly by you know recent uh, events in uh, in english football for instance is that is that you know football in in this country is a pyramid Uh, and we sort of detach the segments of that pyramid uh, at our peril. So I think you know I think it's it's definitely a case of keeping an eye on what uh, what's going on on the other side of the pond. Lots of interesting innovations going on there across sport in all sorts of areas. Um but I think you know again we should, we should sort of pick and choose which bits of that work uh, on our side of the pond advisedly. 
let's pick out one of these points, I guess. And because what we're seeing is increasing, you've got this investment environment. So American groups that come with that mindset of closed leagues and a certain investment environment compared to promotion relegation. And there is a growing feeling. We've had these had people on the podcast, quite a lot of them talking about or aspiring to that. And Rick, you mentioned the Super League and that feels like taking some of the ideas of an American system and trying to impose it on European football. And there is this difference between, or uh, is there a difference between that top end, the top six in the Premier League and the rest? And obviously there was a, you know, that's the very controversial part. There is an assumption that the money flows down. There is a trickle down effect. Is that true? Does that work from you're sitting there in the, in the you know, in charge of the, the EFL? The money, and you, you've got parachute payments as one mechanism. Does it work? Is that the bit which needs the strongest reform? Uh, yes. In a word, um, absolutely, and everything flows from redistribution, uh, in our view. What we need is fundamental redistribution, um, enhanced cost controls. Uh, we have decent cost controls in the EFL. We need to enhance them. We need to change them. Clubs are willing to do that. Once we have those two things, then we have 72 sustainable clubs almost overnight. That is then the bedrock for regulation going forwards we have a we have a great environment it's, it's all about the key word is absolutely about sustainability and the gulf between the championship and the premier league is almost unbridgeable there are, there are a myriad of different stats but you know if you look at the 14 non big six let's let's not talk about the six because there there are six clubs who've been in the premier league forever doesn't include manchester city interestingly um, but there are 14 who at some time or another will be in the EFL. You know, Brentford became the 50th club to join the Premier League. So, you know, there are three teams for every place in the Premier League. So statistically, they're going to be moving upwards and downwards. The 14 teams in the Premier League in 2018-19, which is the last season, normal season pre-COVID, and 11 times as much revenue from TV as the 24 clubs in the championship. You know, that, that is ludicrous. Trying to bridge that gap, the, the bottom club in the Premier League gets around 96 million. Top club in the championship got eight. The, the bottom club in the Premier League got more uh, until our new TV deal in 2020 got more than the 72 clubs in the EFL got from the TV deal. And then we have the parachute payments where six, seven, eight, depending on which year it is, clubs in the championship will be earning vastly more than their rivals. Parachute payments in the championship will amount to around 250 million in a year. That is, that is one third of the total revenues from every source of the 24 championship clubs. It, 
I, you know, I've used the phrase that they're an evil to be eradicated. You know, that is, that's not an overstatement. They're, they're just a huge distortion. And what's even worse is that the the gap is enshrined because in the solidarity agreement we have with the Premier League, the payment that all the other clubs get in the championship is actually fixed as a small percentage of a parachute payment, which is utterly bizarre when you think about it, because you, you kind of say, well, what do we need to give our clubs to get back up? Um, and, and then we'll work out what to give the rest. And, and, and the others get about 11% of a parachute payment. You know, it's, it's minuscule. And that's what leads to the irrational behaviour in the championship. That's why we've got clubs paying 107% of turnover on wages. It's why they're losing 300 million. It's why they've got 1.1 billion of debt. Um, and it's why on average owners of championship clubs are putting 16 million into their club every single year. It, it, you know, it's the most expensive lottery ticket on the planet. Now, the model is, the model's nuts. And we say that the fact that there are parachute payments mean that the Premier League clubs recognise as a problem, but they're tackling the symptom. They're not tackling the problem. And if a regulator simply said, we're going to make parachute payments illegal, that would actually be enough. Then we'd, then we'd have to talk about redistribution because the clubs who are potentially going to be relegated in the Premier League would suddenly realise they have a problem and a major challenge and we'd have to sit, get around the table and solve the problem properly. So when, when we wrote to Tracy Crouch, when we presented to Tracy Crouch, we said, we need to get rid of parachute payments and we need to talk about redistribution. And then, of course, we will handle financial regulation. But as I said, if, if government wanted to do us a favour, they could just say parachute payments, illegal. Now go and sort out redistribution. It would follow fairly quickly. What form would redistribution take? What would be the What was your utopia in terms of what's the, the, the dream scenario of redistribution? That's simple. Because we have two objectives, as I said, one is to one is to make all of our clubs sustainable, and the other is to halve the gap between the top of the Championship and the bottom of the Premier League to make the gap bridgeable. That benefits teams going up, but it also benefits teams coming down. And as I said, that the gap at the moment is just way too wide, so you, you have to narrow that. And our model is extremely simple. It's we pool the TV rights of the EFL and the Premier League, sell them jointly, and then give 25% of the sum to the EFL. Dead simple. That actually solves the problem. It's a really simple mechanism. And I'm a great believer in simple mechanisms. You know, going back many years, we had the we introduced the 50-25-25 formula in the Premier League. Is it accurate? Is it right? Who's to say? It's simple. It's fair. And it stood the test of time for 30 years, so it works. And coincidentally, and this wasn't the reason for proposing it, but coincidentally, prior to the formation of the Premier League, when the 92 clubs were together, ironically, the split of the TV revenues in the last year of the Football League was 75% to the first division, 25 to the rest. So it's actually just taking us back 30 years. But it, that's not the reason, but it's um, it, it would sort of... Uh, 
come full circle in that sense. So a really, really simple formula. Adam, what's your view? I think all this makes perfect sense. I think, I mean, just to go back a little bit, Richard, to, to a comment you made earlier on that I think is, is relevant to this. I think you mentioned uh, American you know, financial institutional investors coming in with a, a mindset uh, that sort of closed leagues are, are best. Actually, you know, what we're finding from our conversations is that, you know, those kind of financial investors, American and, and of other nationalities, are actually coming in with quite a kind of quite a range of different different views. And it's not necessarily the case, as, as perhaps a little bit being perceived, that they're all pushing for closed leagues and, and exactly the opposite of what Rick is arguing for, I think, I think very rationally. And that, you know, that all they want is a sort of separation, take the top of the uh, top of the pyramid away, let the rest of the pyramid sort of, you know, rot as far as they're concerned. So I think um, I think just you know for balance I think it's worth you know recognising that actually there's, there's a kind of plurality of views around that. You know, an interesting example, for instance, is the recent acquisition of Burnley by ALK, which is you know an American-based investor. Where you know where, what they've done there is, is actually really much more of a sort of owner-operator type of approach. They've come in, they've, they've you know essentially ALK people have sort of taken up the senior leadership positions, and they are really sort of hands-on running running the club. And I think from a position of not of saying you know we need to push for the Premier League now to be closed off from, from other leagues along the American lines, but very much actually embracing the current model and seeing opportunity from it. Can I just jump in with one point, which is a really important one, because I, I spent a chunk of my life involved last year in Project Big Picture, which has been roundly criticised and undermined very unfairly, I would say. It's been bracketed with the Super League, when in fact it's completely different. And, you know, it's it's a matter of public record that, John Henry, Joel Glazer, the American owners of Liverpool and Manchester United were very heavily involved in Project Big Picture. They were completely committed to the future of the pyramid. The pluses of Project Big Picture, which ironically, 25% of the revenue coming downwards, better financial regulation, an end to parachute payments, the key elements of what we're looking for were all in Project Big Picture. And as I said, the John Henry, Joel Glazer were completely committed. They absolutely got the pyramid, absolutely got the relevance of keeping Leagues 1 and Leagues 2 alive, that that is fundamental to the fabric of, of English football. And, um, you know, they it's, it's, it's a shame they didn't go public. It's a um, shame they didn't put their views on the record. But just setting the record straight for anybody who doubts it, they, they were totally committed to long-term future of the pyramid, promotion and relegation, proper competitive balance. And the redistribution of Premier League money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 25% coming down. Yeah, absolutely. That was that was a fundamental part of... Uh, and it's all there. It's all in the documentation. So um, that's, that yeah. is, that's a simple matter of record. It's been It's been misinterpreted. It's been undermined. But um, the fundamentals of what we were looking for were all there for the world to see in big picture. So it, it begs the question, who's against it? If those guys are for it, who, what, what are the roadblocks to redistribution? Well, I guess the, the you listen, the bottom line is it, um, the, the challenge is getting 20 Premier League clubs to agree at any point in time. It was not terribly difficult getting our 72, not unanimously, but because it all happened very quickly, but it wasn't difficult getting the vast majority of our clubs to agree, as you would expect. 
But um, And, of course, then the Premier League embarked on uh, a strategic review, which is going to examine all these things. We eagerly await the outcome of it. I was going to ask you, Rick, I mean, do, do you think that, um, you know, sort of, in a sense, almost unwittingly, but perhaps in a, in, a, in a sort of happy coincidence, do you think that sort of the whole ESL debacle is actually shining some much more favourable light on Project Big Picture and perhaps it may actually come into, into vogue at last as a result? No, sadly not, Adam, um, because I think the two have got bracketed together. Mm. So, you know, the Football Supporters Association will say, you know, we need better regulation because we've had two scandals, Big Picture and... European Super League, and you think, hang on, whoa, no, no, no. Uh, maybe it's just coincidental and shorthand that it was, you know, the in inverted commas big six involved, but completely and utterly different projects, different objectives, different outcomes, but bracketed as, you know, it's change, it's bad, it's um, undermining the fabric of English football. And you think, no, hang on, this is just ridiculous. So it's a it's a branding problem for Project Big Picture, not the not the content. The content can be unpicked and pushed through. It, it, again, we come back to this regulator idea, and you said right at the beginning, and I completely agree in terms of well, who does it and what actually do they regulate? If the very if there was a very narrow definition of the regulator, and it was solving this one problem, then that's a success, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was talking with one of the EFL owners last night who's, who's based in America. He's an Englishman, but he's based in America. And, and, of course, there's a myriad of problems that need solving. But he said last night, well, hang on, if, if we actually just focus on the big one, the redistribution, one, two, redistribution and parachute payments, if we focus on them and we get that right, doesn't everything else fall into place relatively simply? And the answer is yes, absolutely it does. And and that is often the problem that you lose focus and you you know you dissipate energy and you start going down blind alleys all over the place. Having a really clear laser-like focus on the fundamentals is what's needed here, in my view. Everything else will take care of itself. But we as I said, we can achieve sustainability for English football and stability very, very easily. Well, sorry, we can't achieve it easily. <laughs> we can state what's needed easily. Getting there is, uh, getting there is uh, a little more challenging, clearly. So if we, if we move it a stage, and that's the sort of central issue and the central challenge, let's talk about debt, because that's a word that gets, again, is can mean lots of different things to different people. It gets misinterpreted easily. I was interested in, so Deloitte's latest report puts it as, as you know, has some numbers in there, but it's quite an interesting difference in terms of the source of where the, where the money is going to be borrowed from. So you had, you know, Spurs and Arsenal going to the government's sort of uh, COVID fund. You've got a whole load of people going to Dell and, you know, you've got, insurance brokers coming in here and then you've got soft debt as as they describe it which is owners essentially coming in with money and this is much more prevalent within the EFL what are the implications of that because that feels like it feels like a sort of positive a good news thing in that they don't have to go 
to other third parties for the money. However, that does expose them to the risk. If the owner goes down in another part of the, the world, then the club is much more vulnerable. Is that? Can we just talk about debt and, and the EFL's view of it generally? Gosh, yeah. So debt is complex. You, you cannot possibly just say debt is bad um, because clearly it depends what the debt is used for. I mean, if you're building a new stadium, if you're investing in capital facilities, debt is a very cost-effective way of funding them. If you're using debt to pay the wages because you are desperately chasing the dream of getting into the Premier League, that's when it can go horribly wrong, particularly if you're paying interest at 9%, 10% in the current markets, which, which some clubs are doing. But, you know, it comes back to if the clubs are sustainable on an annual basis, so if, if you redistribute the revenues, if you have sensible wage controls, so every club can break even, then you solve the problem of uh, using debt for short-term working capital. I mean, one of, the, one of the conundrums that leads into, of course, is how much do you allow owners to put in over and above the income that clubs generate? And there is no right answer to that one. You know, this, this goes from National League right up to the pinnacle of the Champions League where you have, you know, clubs funded by countries, whether that goes in by way of sponsorship income, whether it goes in by way of equity, whether it goes in by way of soft debt, you know, is it, how appropriate is it to allow owners to, to fund their clubs? And as I said, there is no right answer to that. There is no objective answer to it. I think our position on it at the, as the EFL is we don't want to stifle clubs. We're not trying to hold clubs back. We're not trying to bring them down to the lowest common denominator. So, you know, if, if, um, if owners want to improve their clubs, take them to the highest level, then, you know, what, why shouldn't they be allowed to? The key being, though, they've got to prove that they can do it sustainably and the club's not going to go bust the minute they change their mind because we've seen examples of, you know, for example, Bolton Wanderers, uh, who were doing brilliantly in the Premier League while Eddie Davis was supporting them, which was fabulous and, until Eddie, uh, sadly no longer with us, but un, until Eddie was no longer support, supporting them, and then Bolton nearly went out of existence, end up in League Two. You have Blackburn Rovers, you have the absolute dream of Jack Walker's support, where again, it's fantastic until it isn't. Rovers ended up short spell in, in League One. So it's great, but what happens next? And, you know, one of the things we've seen with the pandemic, and, and I think our clubs have done, I mean, you know, the other strange thing for us is we've just come through the most challenging 18 months in recent history, and suddenly we get whacked with, well, we're going to have a regulator, we're going to do this, we're going to do the other. You think somebody might have been thinking, actually, you know what, this is quite a success story. And, and these owners have actually done brilliantly to keep these 72 clubs alive and they should be congratulated and thanked as opposed to, right, now we're going to restrict you, now we're going to um, you know, a whole new level of, uh, of restriction. 
what we're actually looking for is a bit of hope, optimism. And, and that, again, was the great thing with Big Picture, giving owners some hope, some expectations. Um, we'll carry on because there's, there is actually a bright, shining light at the end of the tunnel. We're not looking for the reverse. We're looking for continue to bail their clubs out. Absolutely. Yeah, just coming Rick on that with, uh, you know, I think I think it's a very good point, and I think that um, you know I, I suppose when you have a fan-led review and you ask sixteen thousand fans what they think of, of their owners, you're going to get you know uh, a certain kind of response very often. But I, I do feel that the um, that, 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 that the open letter from last week, uh, published by Tracy Crouch, gives owners a, a sort of fairly tough time. It t- I mean, it's, it sort of points more to kind of the reckless behaviours of certain owners, but I think I think rather understates, as you say, there's many many owners who've had to show great resilience. Perhaps had to issue soft debts to their clubs to keep them afloat, for whom it has been a labour of love. And, you know, as I said earlier, often with you know a very you know very distant and scant promise of, of, of any sort of big return uh, further down the line. And I just I just feel this has a little bit of an imbalanced view of a rather sort of overgeneralised view and a sort of negative view, glass half empty view of owners that comes across from that. I, don't, I didn't feel it was quite fair. I think that's an understatement, Adam. But yes, well, well said. <laughs> So other forms of ownership, I mean, one of the, the sort of subjects de jour on the across the sports sort of landscape is the introduction or the involvement of private equity groups in owning clubs, but also owning leagues or bits of leagues or the commercial parts of governing bodies. We've seen obviously CVC, Formula One, CVC in rugby. We've seen Silver Lake and the All Blacks and in Italy, a whole load of private equity groups going over after the media rights sort of element. What's your general view on the sort of the fit to both of you, really, the fit of private equity into sports ownership? And it's a difficult question because there are different types of sports ownership. But if we look at it from a competitions and tournament and leagues perspective, because of the, there is some you know, talk discussions, live discussions about private equity and its role within women's football, for example, the Super League. I can see benefits and their arguments for greater sort of organisational expertise and rigour. That's the argument in favour of private equity. And they bring money, but they also bring operational expertise. And then I come with a whole load of prejudices about short and long term. So just to get those off my chest in terms of those, are you know, it's it's there is still that feeling that the decisions that you make to boost a business for three, five, seven years return might not be, you know, the, the right decisions, but they are the right decisions for that time frame. What do we think? I'm just throwing that out there in terms of just the broad, the relationship between private equity and the fit with sport. Adam, why don't we start with you? Sure, happy to have a go at that one. Um, well, I think, you know, I think what's interesting is, is that, uh, you know, from the private equity point of view, sport is now seen as kind of fair game for investment. You know, I think there was a time not too long ago when, you know, within the typical sort of private equity portfolio, it might be seen as something a little bit uh, exotic and on the fringes and not necessarily, uh, you know, a, a mainstay of any private equity portfolio. I think that has all, all very much changed. Um, you know, CVC, as you say, have been at it for some time. I think the Silver Lake investment in City Football Group uh, a couple of years ago was a real sort of coming of age type of investment, I think, in terms of, of, kind of in a sense, legitimizing or, or showing the kind of the, the viability, credibility of those kinds of deals. So certainly, you know, from the conversations we have in the market, 
Um, that interest that private equity has in sport is is very strong. As I say, they see it uh, typically as a you know very legitimate form of investment, and and it's and it's not going away. In fact, it's like that interest is likely to come from more sources, more nationalities, more regions, etc. Going forward, I think in terms of the sort of the, the kind of cost sort of cost benefits side of it, you know, I'd go back to my earlier point to say that the private equity groups come in in a lot of different shapes and sizes. It's very easy, sort of, I think, to, to overgeneralize their approach, which tends to be sort of characterized as being as you say, very short-termist, very rapacious, in a sense, sort of emotionally frigid. In other words, there's no sort of great enthusiasm for it. For it. It's just it's purely treating this as a kind of a, a, a sort of you know barbarian to the gate style in out and, and and try and you know make some loot on the way on the way out. Uh, you know what we're finding is actually there's, there's quite a kind of range of different you know, sort of private equity investors out there. Um, some some of them are looking at it you know in a dispassionate way. They're, you know, of course, all of these people are looking for a return. I think they are looking to bring that sort of financial efficiency. They, they do look at things like European football clubs and, and see uh, opportunities to do that. Sometimes they're taking a longer term uh, vocation uh, to it. I mentioned ALK as the owners of Burnley. Well, obviously, we'll see what they do in due course, but it doesn't sound like they're there for, for a short kind of short term sort of grab. They're there to, to, to really sort of substantially sort of uplift the club, uh, its, its governance, its performance, uh, all, all those kinds of things. You know, what I say is, I say, private equity comes in different shapes and sizes. Ultimately, it, ultimately, it is people making decisions. Some of those decisions will be well intentioned, some of them less so. Uh, you know, I think we're inclined to see it, see this as another source of income, and you know, that has to be treated with with caution, but is potentially welcome. And in a sense, we don't necessarily, you know, I think overstate the differences between private equity coming in latterly. And, and other kinds of investors that came in before. And, you know, there's a lot, there are many cases in the ni- 90s and the noughties, for instance, of high net worth individuals coming in and buying up football clubs with a view to making a financial return on them in due course. It, and in some cases, that's exactly what they did. So I think it's, just, I think it's easy to sort of see, to sort of cast private equity as being this, this rather alien, faceless, scary sort of source of income. I think, you know, we our view is to, is to sort of embrace its, its it's, you know, the, the possibilities it brings as another another source of, of funding for sport. Rick, what do you think? So I always try and keep an open mind. I think that's really important. You've always got to look to innovate and, and look for new solutions. Um, I think at a league level, there are three fundamental challenges. One is that, you know, however you dress it up, that this is another party looking for a return. This, this is not a charitable initiative. They want significant returns, which, you know, are their fair reward for the risk that they're taking. And what that goes absolutely against is the fundamental principles of just about every league, which is that it distributes all the income it generates for the benefit of its current members. That leads to the second point, which is, and we've looked at the EFL, we've looked at a number of opportunities, and I said we don't have a closed mind, and particularly during COVID, you know, we, we had the major challenges of substantial hole, 250 million hole in, in gate receipts, which has had massive credit to the owners for battling through that. Uh, we, we didn't replace it in the end. Um, but we had proposals from private equity groups that said, yeah, we, we can give you the 250. Um, that's not a problem. But then, you know, you, you distribute that. Who to? You distribute that to the current members. 
And so what then happens to the expectations of the members for the next 20 years who are paying for that? You know, they're all going to get 20% less income than they were expecting. And that, that is a fundamental challenge. There's no easy answer to that one. I mean, that, that is effectively taking out an expensive mortgage. Um, you have to pay it back. And then, you know, again, you, you, then, you then say, well, okay, they're making a return. Um, what are they bringing? Are they bringing increased rigor, which Adam touched on? Are they bringing better business practices? Well, does that mean we've been getting it wrong? Does that mean we don't know how to run our league? Um, should we be looking at ourselves? And then you then say, well, is there then a danger? Because, and again, this comes back to the philosophical debate of the regulator and interference, and that somehow the idea that clubs shouldn't be voting on their own competition structure, which, which for me is absolutely ludicrous, because you can then have the tension of what do you actually, what rights do you actually give? The investor if they say we'll we'll overcome all of your tensions we'll o- overcome the parochialism we'll overcome the conflicts of interest so we'll take over all of the commercial running of the league brilliant so do they then say you know what we're going to maximize the tv income by televising every single game at 11 o'clock on a thursday night and we then say no 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 you can't possibly do that because we're going to play the majority of games on a Saturday afternoon, because that's when our supporters want to watch them. And by the way, we're going to respect UEFA's Article 48, so you can't broadcast them on a Saturday afternoon. You know, where do you actually draw that line? And I honestly just don't know the answer to that. I don't know how you avoid those tensions, because, you know, the of course we're trying to maximise income, but we're doing it in the round. Maximizing income isn't the only motivation. You know, we have to think about, um, we get criticized for not thinking about supporters, but a lot of that is unfair because, as I said, the fundamentals, certainly at our level, are the traditional kickoff time is, you know, three o'clock on a Saturday. Well, if we simply wanted to maximize income, we, we could do that ourselves by changing that. But then, you know, who calls the shots on? the sporting elements versus the commercial elements and, and how do you address that tension? So, and I, listen, I don't know. I'm not saying it's insurmountable. I'm just saying it's, it, you know, it's another challenge to be, to be considered. Okay. Let's, let's talk about a completely different type of owner, which is the fan. Um, <clears throat> part of, again, one of the, the conversations you hear it's within the, the crouch sort of review and the letter is just the role of fans on the board and having a say, trying to find some mechanism that makes that work. I'm wondering, what are the trade-offs? What are the pros and cons of involving fans centrally in in decision-making, both at a league and a club level? Listen, there's everything to be gained by having strong and healthy relationships with your fans. Uh, Let's not be in any doubt about that. We've had some bad clubs where the fans have had terrible experiences, but they're in the minority. We, we have some great clubs. Improving communication with fans, um, involving them in you know, decisions which involve the match day experience, which involve the things that are important to them, 
it, that's good practice. That is absolutely common sense. And a lot of our clubs do it really well. And again, one of the great features of the pandemic, which seems to have been rapidly forgotten, is the two-way bond that has been highlighted at many, many of our clubs, and it, and it is two-way. So, for example, lots of examples of fans not asking for season ticket refunds, supporting the club, leaving their season ticket money in, even though they didn't attend a single game. You know, that's a tremendous commitment which you don't get in normal business. The other side of the coin is the commitment clubs have made to their work within the community. And the community is the fan base. So, um, you know, extraordinary examples of clubs um, providing free meals, using their kitchens, giving space over to vaccination centres, testing centres, mm-hmm. helping with mental health issues, players and managers phoning elderly fans on a regular basis. There have been some absolutely fabulous stories, which, as I said, now seem to have been overridden and forgotten. But regular consultation, improving um, in, improving the relationship, consulting with fans on um, issues that matter to them, um, you know, ticket pricing, facilities, et cetera, et cetera. That, 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 there's no excuse not to do that, frankly. Um, and, you know, improvements do need to be made. A lot of clubs doing it well, not every club doing it well. But no excuse not to do that. You then get into the sort of, you know, uh, one of the areas of debate at the moment is the heritage issues, club location, um, colours, name. Why that suddenly reached enormous prominence and needs to regulate to sort out when actually it isn't really a problem is, is one of life's mysteries because that's one thing the FA does actually handle rather well. You know, the, the one case that arguably went wrong was handled by a wholly independent commission, which was the Wimbledon to um, Milton Keynes move. That's the controversial one. Um, but in terms of preventing clubs from changing names, changing colours, etc., etc., the FA's done pretty well on that. So why that's suddenly risen to prominence again is, is a bit of a mystery. But, it, you know, again, why on earth would you upset your fan base by changing 100 years' colours or name? It's just... It's just not sensible practice. Absolutely concur with that. Obviously, uh, you know, in, in terms of, of, of what Rick's saying, that that kind of respect and, and conversation with the the fans is, is is vital and has to be sustained, has to be healthy. Um, and of course, you know, some recent episodes have shown the the, the pitfalls of, of not respecting that dialogue. Um, I suppose, I guess that um, you know that often the conversation at this sort of point often turns to you know should or should fans be be kind of controlling clubs outright. Uh, and I, I guess I would just say that, you know, having, having sort of studied the German model and, and looked at sort of fan-led clubs in Spain, for instance, it's not necessarily a, a panacea. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a very easy thing, as I say, to sort of turn towards and, and think of. But the experiences in Germany, for instance, show that it, it really can be quite quite complicated. It can, for, for all the positives that, we're, you know, that, that we know about, um, that sort of 50 plus one that you see in Germany does bring some problems with it in terms of you know, sometimes stifling investment into the club or some, sometimes some, some short-termist outlooks. And, you know, again, the, the case the case is pro and, and against have both been, you know, articulated many times in the past, but um, doesn't seem to be a, a panacea either. It's interesting you mentioned the German model. I mean, we talked about the American model. There, there is this 
again, you quite often feel like, oh, we need to look at, there's a balance, as Rick said, they're keeping your mind open, but also there is this, all the Germans do it better than us, the Americans do it better than us. And actually, quite often, the answer is, is neither of those things. Yeah, you can, you can mistake different for better. Um, <laughs> there is not to say that we shouldn't keep on learning and, and look at best practice. You know, I, I, I think the fundamental that needs to be remembered is that football club owners are custodians, they're stewards. You know, they, they have a huge responsibility. And I think the vast majority of them recognise that. Now, you could say that the limited company model um, Im- imposes. It does, but, you know, that stable door was slammed shut a long time ago and reversing that is not going to, uh, uh, that's not realistic. Interestingly, if you go back to where we started, making every single one of our clubs sustainable, that actually creates all sorts of additional opportunities for ownership models because if every club breaks even, no longer reliant on owner funding, if supporters' trusts then want to um, own the clubs and run them on a strictly break-even basis, it'll be a lot easier to do so. We've had examples in the last 12 months that I've been involved in with, uh, I won't name the clubs, but clubs that have had financial challenges, you meet the supporter group and say, yeah, we'd love to have you as owners. Have you got the £12 million necessary to fund the next six months' working capital? Well, of course they haven't. But that, again, is because the distribution model is is broken and, and requires all of that owner funding. And as you said, you know, just look at the soft debt. Are, are the fans going to come in and take on that soft debt? You know, it, welcome, you know, come, come in and take over the billion pounds of debt. And, and now, good luck. I was going to ask you, Rick, I mean, you know, a number of clubs, again, in the wake of the ESL debacle, have, have sort of um, turned the dial up a bit on fan representation. I just wanted, do you feel that sort of too little too late or, or do you feel it's a sort of step in the right direction? Well, you know, again, the, the interesting thing is uh, a lot of the talk about the need for regulation and, and the crouch review and the urgency is because of the European Super League. The European Super League, which actually didn't happen because it was killed within two days. So actually, I think English football dealt with that rather well. And far from suggesting we need to change everything, it, to me, it actually says, well, you know, maybe not too much is um, is broken with that. I think the the major surprise is that the clubs were surprised at the fan reaction. Hmm. That is the nonsense because, listen, everybody knows promotion, relegation, the pyramid, the dream, the hopes are absolutely fundamental to English football. How How the clubs didn't, foresee the strength of reaction well listen you you, you have to ask them but it, it's it's it is the great mystery of all of this this wasn't complicated this wasn't you know you didn't actually need a complex forum to think well i wonder what our fans might think of european super league you know what they're going to think of european super league they articulated it very clearly and very strongly and that was remotely surprising it's a, it's very true and it's a very it's a really odd one and it's one that i mean you know the people in you know the you know John Henry came out and made an apology to camera and and 
but it was such a fundamental mistake for someone who is very smart and should understand that even his, you know, he could blame advisors or whatever, but it's such a, a daft decision. I don't understand how it would, how that could happen. Yeah. And I think you, you know, listen, I, I, what nobody's really done is to try and understand the why. And I think that's actually really important. What led them? What dissatisfactions were they experiencing? It wasn't about needing more money. They don't need any more money because the money all goes to the players anyway. There's plenty of money. Was it about, um, you know, lack of financial regulation? Do they want stronger cost controls? Do they? Because that was evidently part of the Super League plan, much as it was part of the big picture plan that we enhance cost controls and, and have a degree of um, sense over how the money is is spent. Um, but but what what were the dissatisfactions that led them to take that radical step? Have, have those dissatisfactions gone away? Because at the end of the day, to sort of treat them like, to treat our major clubs like naughty schoolboys is not the answer to me. They, they are still our major clubs. We are still massively reliant upon them for driving all of our revenues. That, that, that hasn't changed. You can't alienate. You, you, you know, you have to, you have to reestablish the dialogue. You, you have to, you have to kicking them off, off every committee and saying we've solved the problem. Yeah, you haven't solved the problem. You've pushed a problem. You've pushed an even bigger problem a little way down the road because you have to embrace these clubs. These clubs really matter. It was a crazy, ridiculous thing to do. It was a bad initiative. But, you know, what What was the underlying... It's a bit like... I think, in a sense, it's a. It's not really the analogy, but as I was saying before, you know, with parachute payments, tackle symptoms rather than problems. We've kind of tackled the, the symptoms, but have we really understood what the underlying issues that drove our clubs to this? And shouldn't we be attempting to find out wise and making sure they don't happen again okay i think that's a, a pretty good place to to finish the why is uh it still goes unanswered in in lots of cases it's always the big question but um adam and rick thank you very much for your time really really enjoyed that let's see how this uh the, the end it reviews and the the regulations and all of those questions let's see how those evolve over the coming weeks and months but until then thanks very much for your time Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you.